Check the program. 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 Welcome to Check the Program, a podcast by four sometimes arts journalists who saw a desperate need for arts coverage and decided to do something about it. I'm Melanie Trompcouver. I'm John Threlfall. I'm Sarah Petrescu. I'm Amanda Farrell-Lowe, and for this month, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to take a listen back to a few of our favorite interviews from 2019, including Lindsay Delarond, Carrie Wass, Ingrid Hansen, and our little mini-doc on the Wonderment music series. So stay tuned. But before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that Victoria occupies the traditional and unceded territories of the Lekwungen and Coast Salish peoples, including what is now known as the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. As settler people, we have the privilege to live, work, and create on these lands, and much of the art we are discussing has also been created and performed here. So we thought this month we'd do something a little bit different, and actually it was, to be honest, a little bit of a forced uh, exercise because of all the snow. We couldn't do... We had a big interview and guest uh, episode planned, which we'll hopefully be doing next month. Um, So we couldn't all get together and do our regular podcast because the weather was so intense. So we thought we'd do something a bit different and take a look back at a couple of our favorite interviews from 2019. So we'll start out with an interview from February of last year, and it seemed like an appropriate one to start out with. Um, And it's our interview with Lindsay Delrond, who was the City of Victoria's first Indigenous artist in residence. And it's a good time to revisit this interview because the City of Victoria has actually just recently selected a new Indigenous artist in residence, uh, Dylan Thomas. And so let's listen back to this interview with Lindsay, which aired on our show almost exactly a year ago now. It seemed like a good time to talk a little bit more about Indigenous art in Victoria. And um, so it also seemed like a good time to talk to Lindsay Delarond. I've been meaning to, she's someone I've been meaning to, wanting to chat with for quite some time. Um, I first uh, noticed her work. I worked at the Royal BC Museum while she was an artist in residence there. Um, So uh, if for folks who don't know, Lindsay is an Iroquois Mohawk artist. She just wrapped her term as the city of Victoria's first ever Indigenous artist in residence. It was originally supposed to be a one-year term, and then they uh, extended it to, I think it was pretty much two years. And uh, so in addition to being the artist in residence for the city, she was also acting Aboriginal curator for open space for a few months while they were dealing with all their transitions so um very very busy woman um and a young child as yeah well. <laughs> yeah she just had a little yeah. baby so uh yeah i don't know how she did it all <laughs> um so she's a multidisciplinary artist she works in printmaking painting drawing photography and video but i think it's safe to say that her residency for the city was very performance art dance focused yeah. Poetry, yeah yeah so like uh things like that accord performance took place on the steps of the legislature 
the Arts as Medicine Forum at the Royal BC Museum. And then the two uh, big pieces were Pendulum and Supernova, the showcases at the Belfry Theatre. And all told, Lindsay told me that she led 18 different projects during her two years as wow. the artist in residence. That's, That's a lot of work. And she says that looking back, the residency unfolded in unexpected ways, both personally and in the community. So when I think about the beginning of my residency, you know, um, how it manifested and unfolded uh, was more than I could have ever predicted. You know, the amount of artists that I've been able to work with, the amount of stories that I've been um, privileged enough to witness, um, you know, the amount of growth in our communities, uh, particularly with the showcases, right, that has occurred at the Belfry. So in the last two years, you know, um, so much work has been done internally uh, for myself to be able to really, I think, hold a position like this and actually really grow in a position like this. There's sort of the professional development aspect that has really grown. um, And I'll sort of touch on that. And then there's also, like I said, the um, the witnessing and observing really the gaps, I think, in Victoria in terms of Indigenous uh, presentations of art and how it could be presented. I mean, I'm left with a lot more questions, again, which is really um, wonderful. You know, the curiosity of really what an artist in residence could do for a city, uh, I think, should be... Uh, really implemented in every province. I think Lindsay's, uh, the challenge with her as the Indigenous Artists in Residence is because so much of it was performative based, Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't leave like that tangible uh, evidence behind. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I felt like it changed my perception of what an artist in residence could be. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting because you think, on one hand, doing performance art and involving audience Uh, members in the artwork just brings a whole different level of emotional connection to the work and to what an artist in residence an indigenous artist in residence can do but yes it's not something that can be a 2d painting that can be you know put in a box or hung on a wall right so which which is interesting in itself right because uh you think about uh, the poet laureate for the city, right? They mm-hmm. they perform these poems at certain events, but then they do have to leave a legacy project behind. Um, but I don't think that was really the case with Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, I think Lindsay probably feels like she's, and I think a lot of artists and people who participated in her work would say that she's definitely left a legacy mm-hmm. uh, project. And um, yeah, you talked about those like physical mementos, these things that pers- persist physically. So I think it really her residency really challenged the way we look at these things. Um, And she also had very open uh, practice, I think. Mm -hmm. Like she often invited members of the community to participate in these projects. I know she spoke about uh, collaborations with people like Monique Salez and Linda Reno Dance that are going to continue. And uh, yeah, I mean, her practice is based on indigenous ways of knowing and sharing art. And those things can often clash with our, you know, our settler ideas around how we consume and critique performance. Sometimes the response is, well, you know, I didn't understand that part or I don't understand or I don't get it, you know. And I think one thing about Indigenous art is it's not about getting it. It's about um, acceptance, 
you know, I had this teaching given to me uh, a couple of years ago, and they told me, you know, when you walk into the big house, when you walk into a ceremony, you need to turn off that mind that wants to understand it or wants to get it, you know, so you walk away feeling like you, you are... Uh, you, you you got something from that or you, you're you've took you've taken something from that for yourself but it's all about accepting accepting where you are where where you are accepting the work that's being um, shown to you you know the songs the dances you know it's all about accepting and really letting that resonate you know inside of your heart yeah, and I mean, you think about it, something Lindsay brought up, um, like we really need to remember the significance of being able to watch Indigenous performers mm-hmm. do their work because for they've been through so much and, you know, their culture was essentially ripped away from them. They weren't allowed to mm-hmm. perform it. Um, so, yeah, it's something that we need to keep in mind as, as audiences. Because when I think about, you know, the songs and uh, dances that are shared, you know, even in the sort of stage context, that's that's generosity that's being expressed, you know, for a long time. Potlatching was banned. The exposure of any uh, native song or dance was was banned from our communities. The amount of oppression through residential school or our um our, our sacred languages being taken away, you know, and the abuse on top of that to keep all of that hidden, all of that unseen, you know, and through the resilience of Indigenous peoples from all territories keeping that going, you know, um, it's amazing. It's really amazing. And I feel like the settler population, non-Indigenous population, um, is entitled to that quest as well in their own process of understanding who they are. You know, uh, what songs and dances and stories do they come from? I think it's a a beautiful journey to embark on. You know, there's been a lot of uh, trauma, not just with Indigenous peoples, but with with Canadians. You know, all of these scenarios coming to this country and what does that mean today? And that's something that we're unpacking. Yeah, pretty powerful sentiment, you know, that, yeah, yeah, I really, I really appreciated that, you know, and you can see why she was a great Indigenous artist in residence for this era of reconciliation right yeah she's incredibly smart powerful woman and i think she just cracked a lot of things open in town and it's great i'm i'm curious to see where she goes with it and where other people take what they've sort of been part of yeah and speaking of that i asked you know i asked her what are you gonna do next i mean she's got she's got a little baby at home and everything but she um she did say that uh she wants to continue that work of working to unpack those things all together and she described her path as more like stepping stones that keep revealing themselves to her as she does something different and for her the next stepping stone is an artist collective oh the two years that i've been an artist in residence i have cultivated a vision for myself Uh, not just for myself but like-minded individuals in victoria that also see indigenous theater indigenous performance as a need not for the sake of performance per se, but more so of the unity, of the healing, of the processing, of the storytelling, of the songs, of the dances, of the medicine, of the ritual, of us coming together and acting and being who we are 
you know, sovereign nations that come together and want to work nation to nation, I think is a very beautiful thing. And beautiful things happen from that. And the only reason why I know that is because people tell me that that's the reflection that I'm getting back. It's it's what I see when I look in the in the water, the reflection is like, I'm on the right path. And so are we are on the right path. Yeah, so hopefully more from her and the when she's ready. <laughs> I mean, I just yeah. think about the couple of years. She's just been so busy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing. So um, I, I did uh, ask her, you know, kind of a loaded question um, I, about progress. Hmm. I asked her, you know, does she feel like we're making progress on Indigenous issues here in Victoria and beyond uh, post-Truth and Reconciliation Commission? And she pointed out that we really need to take a wider view and that only time will tell. Hmm. When I think of progress and I think of like visibility of progress, I have to really look at my mom and my grandma, you know, like I have to think of like those older generations. There was progress being made in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and, you know, we're in the 2000s now. And when progress is rate so close and you're actually within the progress, you know, you're, you're making proactive choices to want to see Indigenous peoples have a better existence, be equal in this country, uh, be treated with respect, um, you know, to be treated with respect in all realms, in health, in education, in law, um, you know, f- to see land jurisdiction and, and, and treaties honored. I mean, there's so much work to do. Um, we've been at this for a long time. We've been at this for a long time. And, um, and so progress, I have to really sort of look at things in, in a historical worldview, because I'm within the era of reconciliation. This era will translate into something else. I've never heard that it put that way in this era of reconciliation. Yeah. It will translate to something else. That's really, yeah, she's right. So where, where, where are we going? Yeah, and I, I mean, uh, that sort of leads to what will happen with the city's Indigenous artists. And Just going to ask yeah. that. <laughs> Is that going to continue? or? No one knows. I mean, neither of the... I don't think there's any solid answer on either of the artists in residence mm-hmm. programs at the City of Victoria because there was also kind of a more, quote-unquote, general artist in residence that was a position held by Luke Ramsey. Yeah. Uh, that neither of them... Like they've served their terms. They both extended ones. Yeah, right? they, but there was no discussion about going mm-hmm. beyond that. And uh, Lindsay said it would be a real shame to stop now, given what she saw during the two years that she was in the role. It's very promising. I mean, the response from the community because um, the benefits, like I said, in terms of the exposure of, uh, you know, Indigenous perspectives and worldview in the arts um, has to come from that Indigenous, from the Indigenous population. Um, You know, we have a lot of allyship that come in and, and, and nurture and help foster you know new ideas and growth and expansion um so that reciprocity like i mentioned is uh is is growing in our city you know and i think to uh let an opportunity like this pass or not continue to delve deeper in it um i wouldn't say is in the best interest of the city so that was Lindsay Delaron, the City of Victoria's first ever Indigenous artist in residence. And as I mentioned at the beginning of that interview, uh, the City of Victoria has recently selected their second ever Indigenous artist in residence, 
Um, at the end of the interview, uh, we didn't know if the program was going to be continuing, but we do now. And uh, the new Indigenous artist in residence is uh, Coast Salish artist Dylan Thomas. And uh, you actually have an opportunity to meet Dylan on uh, this coming Wednesday, January 22nd, between 5 and 7 p.m. at City Hall. Um, if you're around, pop in, say hello. And uh, if you'd like more information about that, you can visit victoria.ca slash public art. Another interview that we wanted to revisit for the show was an interview we did with local puppeteer and performer and director and writer, uh, Ingrid Hansen. And the reason we wanted to look back at this one was this interview aired in March and Ingrid had just found out that she was going to be spending the summer in New York City working on this top secret job at the Sesame Workshop in New York City. Take a listen to John's conversation with Ingrid Hansen. So, John, you caught up with Ingrid Hansen. Yeah, because my friend Facebook told me that uh, <laughs> she was going to be in New York City for the summer working on a project with uh, the Sesame Workshop. And the Sesame Workshop, of course, is the same group who's behind Sesame Street, um, which is, you know, Sesame Street, as we all know Sesame Street. And I didn't know Sesame Street had gone so international. Now they're in eight different countries and multiple languages. Uh, other kids shows they produce, like The Electric Company and uh, Dragon Tales and Pinky Dinky Doo and stuff like that. Is it called like, like Rue de Sesame? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It's things like that. But yeah. they're in Afghanistan and India and the Middle East and Bangladesh and Brazil and South Africa. Like it's pretty cool the way yeah. they really spread around the world. Um, Anyway, so she's in New York City for the summer. Uh, she's working on this new project there. Uh, Ingrid Hansen, for people who don't know the name off the top of their head, is behind such shows and as uh, Kitten Jane, uh, Interstellar Elder, Little Orange Man, mm -hmm. and is the co-artistic director for Snafu Dance Theater here in town. So my obvious first question for her is, can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? <laughs> yeah. Um... You take a very expensive flight from Victoria, and uh, I'm not working on Sesame Street. The company that produces Sesame is working on a new project. They're a little bit outside of uh, of Manhattan, um, in this big old uh, big old production studio that's been there for a really long time with big wrought iron gates. It's, uh, and the set is gorgeous. I mean, I get to work with some of my heroes who puppeteer on Sesame all the time. So obviously Sesame Street is uh, pretty much the, uh, I would think, the, the top of the heap when it comes to puppetry, uh, unless you're working with George Lucas Studios <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. But um, I wondered if uh, Ingrid had watched Sesame Street as a kid as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I don't think I knew that, it, that being a puppeteer was a job. But if I did, I think I would have wanted that to be my job. My, my siblings and I made our own puppet shows when we were kids, and we filmed them on my grandma's giant clunky VHS camcorder. And, you know, we had scripts and soundtracks, and 
and we had brought the neighbor kids over to do our special effects, which was basically pressing play on the ghetto blaster to make the music go, or wiggling flashlights around to be sirens and stuff like that. So she goes from there, uh, she grows up, uh, ends up enrolling in UVic at the theater department there, and that's where she was first exposed to serious puppetry. She, in her second year, uh, Ingrid said that she had seen a production by Old Trout Puppet Workshop. They came in and did famous puppet death scenes. Mm. Did anybody remember that seeing? That was a good show. Uh, it was an amazing show. I still remember loving that so mm. much. And and it's kind of funny that Ingrid was in the audience as a student and saw that and got inspired. And that was her first exposure to serious puppetry. Uh, and it's kind of funny, too, that uh, Peter Balquill, who's one of the people behind the old Trouts, uh, is also Phoenix alum. So we've got two of these great Canadian puppeteers now, Ingrid Hansen and Peter Balquill, both came out of there. But neither studied puppetry at UVic. They don't actually teach puppetry mm. at all. Um, but she says working on stage and puppetry and working on TV with puppetry is very different, which I had never thought about before. After I studied theater at UVic, I saw an audition posting for a show that was filming in Victoria. You know, almost nothing gets filmed in Victoria other than Hallmark movies. They were filming this children's television series in Victoria, and I had no puppetry experience other than playing with my toys as a child. Um, and I didn't at all expect to get the job, but I saw this audition posting, and part of the audition posting was a free training workshop with a puppeteer who used to work on Fraggle Rock and Sesame Park. And I thought, you know, there's no way I'm going to get this job, but I want to meet this person and, and I'm going to just experience this audition. And so I went and they hired me and I got to perform um, a lead puppet character on Tiga Talk, produced by APTN, the Aboriginal People's TV Network. And uh, it was just an absolute dream job and they trained us. We did a whole boot camp um, of training. So she's talking there, of course, about Tim Gosley, who, when he moved to town a few years ago, totally uh, revitalized the, the puppet scene in the mm -hmm. city. And uh, it was through working with Tim that she really learned uh, the skills about how to work puppets for TV. Television puppetry is, is a very specific skill set, and it, it, it does take a lot of very specific training. Um, because when you're puppeteering on television, the you're watching a live feed monitor of your performance while you're puppeteering. So you're, you're seeing, you have a little TV screen at your feet or strapped to your chest or on a little stand in front of you, and you're seeing exactly what the camera sees while you're performing, but the image isn't flipped like a mirror image, it's the opposite. Sounds very confusing to me. <laughs> I don't think I could do that. But it's nice. So she, because she has this background uh, working on Tiga Talk and working with him and knowing firsthand how to do this kind of thing, that she had the opportunity for her Sesame Puppet Workshop. Um, so we were talking just about the resurgence of puppetry in general in popular culture. You think about things like Lion King and Avenue Q on stage, uh, War Horse. Um, King Kong right now is on Broadway. It's a huge puppet version of King Kong that's happening. Uh, the Muppet Show and the Muppet Movies that have come back. Uh, they're doing a sequel to The Dark Crystal now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's that dreadful Happy Time Murders that was on TV. <laughs> if, if you haven't seen it, don't go to your way to see mm -hmm. it. Um, so I was just asking you just in general about the, the resurgence of puppetry. Well, I think in the like, mid to late 90s, there was, a re there was a real growth in computer animation. And that took over a lot of things that puppetry had formerly served. And now I think people are realizing that there's a lot of, um, there's something that's lost when you go completely to green screen and computer animation. There's kind of a deadness to the whole film because everything is shot in green screen and nobody is actually 
interacting with any of the creatures. Everything is an actor alone in a green room with, with nothing to play off of. Whereas when you have performances with puppetry, there's, there's more reality to it. There's more, um, it's much more authentic. I just wanted to know from her, what, uh, what is it about puppetry she really loves? When I was a kid, I always wanted to be a cartoon or be able to create cartoons. And it's kind of the animation of live performance. I love working with kids with puppetry because um, I, I've, I've been told that play isn't innate, that children learn how to play. It's not something we necessarily do all by ourselves. Like children learn how to play by playing with their siblings or their friends or their parents. And so, and, and so much of what how children learn is that they learn through play. And so if you don't play, if you, if you spend all your time on your iPad, there's a, a lot of essential learning that is lost. And so what I love, I love the way that the artistry of prophecy, when people are, are learning it, it's like often people are re, either adults are relearning how to play, or sometimes children are, are learning how to play um, she's been doing these uh, How to Puppeteer Anything workshops for now, uh, for a while. Let me do that again. She, uh, Ingrid's been running these How to Puppeteer Anything workshops for a while now. So uh, I had just just asked her what some of the weirdest things she's brought to life have been. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, tampons, sweaters, and, you know, books and shoes, and a, a room full of paper and cardboard. I did a whole project in this monastery in Prague where there were 20 artists from around the world and we had four days and a studio full of paper and cardboard and tape. And we created all these massive um, sculptures and giant puppets and costumes exclusively out of paper and cardboard and then performed this big interactive spectacle in the, in the monastery's gardens, like the Franciscan gardens. I've seen the tampon sketch it was part of an atomic vaudeville thing. Well, she does this bit where she um, she's supposed to do a puppet show and then realizes she doesn't have anything with her, so she's just going through her purse and does a puppet show based on what she has in her purse. Okay. Mm. And it's amazing. Huh, huh. It's really good. Well, I love that idea of just uh, taking a room full of paper and cardboard and bringing it to life. That's, yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, so she's in New York for the summer, uh, but her uh, company, Snafu, uh, is still busy with, uh, they've got Calling Home, stories from military families coming up uh, in April, mid-April at the Metro. And then they're launching a new show that's set in the Kitten Jane universe, uh, Rod Peter Jr.'s new show called Chase Breyer, part-time substitute teacher, full-time Canadian super spy. And that's going to be at certain fringe festivals. always one summer. for those titles, <laughs> oh, eh? Yeah. But I love the idea of expanding the Kitten Jane yes. universe. That's pretty great. Uh, and then she's going to be working on a new project uh, out at William Head this fall as well. Um, but she also there's, but she also said there's a new initiative happening uh, for the local puppet community as well. Uh, a new group called Unima West. Tim and Peter Bockwell from the Old Trout Puppet Workshop, and I think a few others have just launched Unima West. U N I M A. Unima is a not really a un, is an association, an international association of puppeteers. 
and we've never had a Western Canada chapter. And finally, it's quite, quite, quite a big presence in Quebec, in Europe, and so finally, Tim and Pete have opened up a Unima West chapter, which is a puppetry association. So any puppet-interested people should definitely join. So she's going to be busy out there, um, but she says it's not going to be all work in New York City. Uh, she'll find out some other ways to uh, keep herself engaged as well. Yeah, we have weekends off, at which time I will be probably, like, soaking in a bathtub because puppetry builds all sorts of weird muscles that then hurt later. You do some contorting. You do some, uh, yeah, building unusual muscle groups. And, and different designs of puppets, like different shapes and styles of puppets build different muscles, too. So um, I'm going to be working in a new style that is going to present all sorts of really fun challenges. That I can't tell you anything about, except that I've been working out for the last month and a half trying to get ready. Um, it's always great to see local talent uh, doing well internationally, and it's uh, exciting to see someone like Ingrid Hansen uh, working on this new top secret project with Sesame Workshop. So it'll be exciting to hear what the actual piece is and when we can actually talk about that and see it. Mm -hmm. Great. So, thanks, yeah. John. And thanks, Ingrid. So that was Victoria's Ingrid Hansen talking about her top secret gig in New York City with the Sesame Workshop. We've since learned that she was working on a show called The Helpsters, which you can actually watch now on Apple TV. It premiered in November 2019. Our next interview that we wanted to highlight is actually, this was a really fun one. This was a guest that we had on the show and was actually where our theme song was born. This was when Carrie Wass, AKA Carrie OK, stopped by on the show to chat about UNOFest back in May, and he wrote a little tune for us too. So check out this uh, fun chat that we had with Carrie. We've talked about you a lot on this show. Thanks, I know I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, you know, name dropping you every now and then. Um, yeah, of course we re reviewed your show um, at Fringe, mm -hmm. and then I've talked to you about you with the Tom of Bodwell, but for people who may not know you, yeah. God forbid, can you give us a little recap on your background in Victoria? Yeah, I, so my name is Carrie Wass, and I, I went to the Phoenix Theatre. I, I actually came out of a very like fortunate year, I think. I'll, I'll explain. I was in the same year as Chris and Peter, hmm. Sam Mullins, hmm. Ingrid Hansen. What? All in the same year. All in the same year. Wow. That's, there's Chelsea Haberlin, Sebastian Archibald, right. Trevor Hinton was a year above me, right? So there's like a lot of people at the same time, but I do feel very fortunate to be kind of part of that, uh, that alumni in the exact same year. So yeah, I came out of the Phoenix uh, Theatre. I was lucky enough to uh, be friends with Jacob Richmond, who created a character based around me uh, loosely at, well, very literally kind of at the start, but then it changed into Misha Baczynski as a, pro a progress in Ride the Cyclone. And from there, I moved to Toronto and acted over there and ended up becoming a school teacher in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Talk about oh. a segue there, huh? No kidding. <laughs> that, what a ride this cycle. Like, <laughs> right. So, uh, but now I'm back. And one thing that's been awesome is I was extremely nervous coming back to Victoria um, and performing again in general. I, I, I've been, it's been so not a part of my life for a long time. Why did you come back? Um, 
I knew I wanted to come back to Canada. I taught drama in Vietnam and it was life-changing. I loved it. Really, it's a totally different world and I learned so much about myself and it was very eye-opening. Um, and my students that I taught, they just really inspired me to be creative again. So I knew that I wanted to come back to Canada and my partner Bernadette and I, we were doing kind of like a BC trip one summer and she came to Victoria and as most people do mm. they fall in love with Victoria and she said would you ever want to live in Victoria it's like I actually have <laughs> <laughs> many friends there so it's worked out very well but yeah the whole the whole Victoria theater community from the atomic vaudeville crew to everyone on the, at this table with me you know everyone's been so warm and that's been a relief <laughs> right because you you really kind of as a performer get convinced sometimes Oh man, they're not gonna like me anymore. They're not gonna <laughs> like me. But I've come back and everyone's been so awesome. So I really appreciate that. And to all the community listening, I, thank you so much. It's been great. So did you come? You because you did timeless, timely tunes for Fringe last year. I did. So did you come back just before the Fringe, or have yeah. you been in town for a while? I came back to Victoria kind of full time right before the Fringe. Oh, okay. But this show. Uh, well, yeah, it was debuted at the Fringe Festival, but it was created over time, over the course of about a year, at open mics in Ho Chi Minh City. Oh, really? Where I'd bring my looper and improvise songs about people in the crowd or friends. And I did it at house parties where I'd just do it as a joke. And, you know, then you get so much support and the wink, wink, nudge, nudges of, hey, you should do a show with this. And I thought, yeah, I guess I, guess I could. So... Yeah. Then came Timely Timely Tunes. So is it an improvised show or what's the Uno show? No, so the show is um, written. Mm -hmm. There are five original songs all based on different stories. Some of them evolve around the anxiety that my students felt in Vietnam and how it kind of affected my own anxieties to create. One of them is called uh, uh, the Breaking Kayfabe, which is about pro wrestling and kind of how in social media, there's a lot of pro wrestling tactics being used to get the, the audiences riled up. And there's also the debut of the first ever, I think, one person hip hop rap crew, one man army, where it's <laughs> myself, four other members, but they're all portrayed by me. And uh, and it's a dream come true. I've always wanted to be part of a rap crew. <laughs> so, so you started your own. I started my own. I saw, you know, like the gorillas. <laughs> sure, yeah, the yeah. animation characters. Yeah, and I yeah, just yeah, think, yeah. you know what? I'll just become all the characters. So that sounds like you're the character from Ride the Cyclone a little bit. Because you did the rap battle with yourself. Right. Yeah. So for those people who saw the original Ride the Cyclone. All of us. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> kind of we fell sure. in love with it then. Okay. So do you remember... Brooke and Jake, they wrote a song for the character at the time it was called Corey Ross. Mm -hmm. Very similar to Carrie Was, so thank you, Jake. <laughs> um, and I had a rap battle against myself. And Jacob, I remember him taking me to his living room and showing me a YouTube video of Reggie Watts. And he was like, I want to do a song like this where we use this kind of looper. And so we ended up bringing one to rehearsal and using it. And the number was a was quite popular, I think. Mm -hmm. But then, as with many things in the show, they change over time and mm -hmm. it takes on new forms. But it was the one thing that I kept on hearing year after year. Like, whatever happened to that rap battle against <laughs> yourself? Whatever happened? And so it did sit with me for a long time. I always thought, like, there's a whole musical with this type of device. It's there. Um, but I knew that the technology, for lack of better words, wasn't there. And so when this live looper that I'm looking at right now came to be, I realized that's the missing piece. Yeah. Now the, the show is possible. So it was that, uh, that led me to, to purchasing the machine, but 
It all was sparked by Reggie Watts and Jacob Richmond in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> so you brought, you brought machine. Um, I did. Obviously, people can't see it. So you want to just, just describe it to us? Like, what, what do you got here? Right. So this device is a, called a uh, loop station. What it allows me to do is to instantaneously record my voice and loop it multiple times over in five different separate tracks. Essentially, it's the 21st century one-person band. Right, so I was walking down the wharf, and there's the the famous guitarist there. He's got his little box and the pedal, and he's yeah, playing this yeah. banjo. And that yeah. it's like that, um, but two thousand years in the future. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we got right here. Cool. So, um, so, and this is the only piece of technology you use in the show. This does everything. This does everything, huh. and it allows me to create the one-person a cappella musical. Oh. Yeah. So when I explain that to people, I say it's a one-person a cappella musical. Um, there's a lot of, I think, rewiring. People are kind of like, oh, what, what's that now? And it's one of those things that you almost have to, to see to believe. Um, there are people who do this on YouTube, mm-hmm. but they've never kind of done it theatrically the way I've mm-hmm. done it, which is I'm using a lot of like, there's a lot of storyline to mine and um, a lot more dialogue and rapping in my show. They use it more as kind of like a techno. They like to do it yeah. as like a DJ would. Yeah, know? I've seen uh, I've seen people like I've seen Reggie Watts perform. I've seen Beardy Man do. Uh, yeah, he, Beardy Man. Um, I've seen uh, James Blake. Uh, he does a lot of that kind of stuff too. I've seen quite a few people, but nothing in a theater performance really. So this right. will be pretty. Beardy Man yeah. blew me away. This is amazing. Last year, so I didn't good. know what to expect, and I just. <laughs> But he's like he's more like he does comedy sets with oh, it too. But absolutely. he does like straight up music too. Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. pretty awesome. It, it was like yeah, a comedy dance show because the you know everyone in the audience was certainly on our feet just dancing. Yeah, it was away, pretty it just, great. You couldn't help but break out. It's super cool. Um, so Carrie, you were gonna do a little song. Uh yes, I'm gonna do a little improvised lick for you just for this Ooh. show. Oh, perfect. Right. Right. Let's do it. I like it. Check the program. 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 I'm glad I can add to the show. That's so cool that you can just do that on the fly, though. Like, you must have been, like you said, you were going to open mics. That must have taken a lot of just practicing and doing improvising to get to the point where you can just... Yeah, it's actually interesting. So when I ordered it, I was ordering it to Vietnam. But I had to ship it to the U.S. And then I had someone in Vietnam who would get shipments from the U.S. to Vietnam. And then he would bring it to me. So what I'm saying is, it took a while. Mm-hmm. So I would watch YouTube videos of this device and essentially imagine how I would do the track if I were to have the machine. <laughs> and so by the time it showed up, I actually picked it up relatively quickly because I had already seen it in my mind a lot. Like, oh, that button does this. Mm-hmm. And so 
Yeah. It was, but it's a lot of time kind of just hanging out and with the headphones on and figuring it all so out. So you said the show was inspired by students, and I've seen the show. They're mm-hmm. in. They're in. What? Are, how? What have your students? What do they think of it? And have any of your students here since you've been teaching? Do they know about your uh, life on the side? So my students in Vietnam have been told about my show, and um, I don't know if they know how much they are a part of it in terms of them influencing me. Um, but I think they're coming to realize that. Um, I've actually been in communication with a former student of mine named Tina at spoon underscore X on Instagram, and she's a graphic designer. And so I approached her about doing the designs for One Man Army, my one person hip hop group. Mm -hmm. And when I was telling her the characters and describing them, um, I think she was thinking my teacher's a little bit crazy, but she totally was all for it and drew it for me. Um, Now the students that I teach here in Victoria, they are starting to realize, and I think when I first tell them that I'm a performer, they think I'm a liar. (laughs) Like that's like some kind of trick that I'm playing. And then the other is if I tell them that it's a comedic show, they're like, all right, tell me a joke. (laughs) You know, which is like, I don't know what to do with that. But I always say like, I think you need to see the show and you'll enjoy it. It's a different side of Mr. Wass. (laughs) (laughs) I've never thought of you before as Mr. Watts. (laughs) So you did this at the Fringe Karaoke, Timeless Mm -hmm. Timely Tunes. Um, The Fringe is, of course, an application-based process. You apply for a slot, and if you get it, you're in the Fringe. Uh, UNO is a curated program. So uh, did did, uh, Heather and Sean at uh, Intrepid approach you about being in the show in UNO? Well, I, I knew I really wanted to be in UNO, and I let that be known to Heather. Uh, she and the entire Intrepid team um, have been so supportive. And I don't know if you've ever had the chance of sitting one-on-one with Heather and her talking about her vision for Victoria and their theater scene, but it's very infectious. And I think we, we have that similar feeling. Like, we're very passionate about continuing to, to grow new talent and new audience and produce new material. And so she's been fantastic with that, and she gave me the opportunity. So that was Carrie Wast, a.k.a. Carrie OK, chatting with us in advance of his performance at UNOFest. And he also went on to do a uh, tour uh, of a few cities across Canada. So that's great. And we can't wait to see that show again, hopefully at some point. That was a good one. And the last piece that we're going to share as part of our best of 2019, although there are many other ones that we would like to share too, is our little mini doc that we did about the Wonderment music series that happens every spring and I guess spring and summer now because this uh, first piece where we recorded this piece actually happened over the May long weekend around the city of Victoria. Check it out. David Bodrug. I am the past president and secretary of the Garden City Electronic Music Society. I'm also the curator for the Wonderment series. Uh, Well, the idea with Wonderment is to kind of set up systems um, and multi-channel systems. We try to um, get wide dispersion of, of the audio coming out of the system. Um, so it's ambient. Um, the idea with the public parks was that as you entered the public park, 
Um, we started with beatless ambient music and it was almost a sound sculpture type thing where as you entered the park, the uh, sounds coming from the system kind of blended in with the natural ambience of the park and um, we tried to um, keep speakers kind of hidden away and, and the artists as well um, are low-key. We don't have like a traditional stage and two columns of speakers set up. You know, the, the whole, I guess, idea of your curatorial vision is, is kind of to instill a sense of wonderment in people encountering these events. Over the years, the audience has grown enough that when you walk into the park, you can see that something's going on right away. And anytime we use a new venue, um, we're usually a bit low, low key on the uh, promotion just to kind of test it out with the regular users of that park, or in, in this case, the, the courtyard at the library. We're kind of past the point of, um, I guess, people just wandering into the events blindly. Um, there's uh, quite a, enough people coming specifically for these events that, um, but it's, it's more of like a community gathering type thing now. But the music policy and vision still say, stays the same. Um, we also like to have the artists um, kind of on the ground, not on a stage, accessible to people. It's a lot of electronic shows, you're watching an artist from their front um, and you actually don't see what they're doing. So we like to position the artists in a way that if people are curious, they can go up and actually see what the, the craft of electronic music is. And it's a, usually a slower paced kind of performance scenario. So, um, you know, we've had moments where um, artists can actually interact with people as they come up. And, kids are curious. We've had a couple of artists that have actually let kids touch the gear and modulate um, sound and kind of get their hands on. Um, we, we do do workshop type things. We've got a series called the Synth Petting Zoo that we're um, going to be probably bringing back in the fall. Um, and that series is basically where electronic musicians bring you know, their favorite gear out to a community center type environment um, and invite the public, other uh, musicians come, people who have never touched electronic gear before and they all have the ability to go and try out different pieces of gear and ask the owners about, you know, how it works and um, for people getting started out in electronic music, it's a great experience to interact with artists community and overall, um, the goal of the electronic Music Society is is to um, advance electronic music, and um, we feel strongly that by inviting the public in to interact with artists, with the technology, that the public will become more educated about what's involved in electronic music and performance and production. And through that, you know, we'll, ultimately we're going to develop a critical audience which will just raise the bar in terms of the music that's being made in, in the region. I am Neil Cookdown. I'm Thomas Shields. We're the Righteous Rainbows of Togetherness. So can you tell me a bit about this gig we're about to hear? Uh, well, basically, David gave us a shout because he got the go-ahead to uh, do an outdoor um, 
do this outdoor series and uh, I guess the one of the main features is that it's quadraphonic sound which means um, there's a, a four-way sound system kind of like uh, surround sound basically. How are you guys going to be using the quadraphonic sound system? Putting sounds in all four speakers. <laughs> yeah, yes. I think we've, we've each got a different kind of setup and we'll approach it slightly differently. Um, I think what I'm going to try and do is have my uh, direct sounds that I play come out of two of the speakers and then um, throw echoes and reverbs into the other speakers so that it's kind of like uh, messing with the illusion of space inside the courtyard here. How do you think that's going to work in this courtyard that's kind of notorious for its uh, how it treats sound? <laughs> well, we're going to stack reverb on reverb and see what happens, I guess. <laughs> how is this different than a gig that you guys would usually play? Um, I don't anticipate any dancing, but maybe, you know, but I'm, I'm not, I don't, I'm not making music with dancing in mind, or danceability in mind today, so more like loungeability and listenability. Yeah, Tom, Tom and I actually, you know, make all sorts of different types of music um, between the two of us and together, and, uh, you know, generally when Rainbows play a show, people um, come out for a dance party, so it's a... Uh, it's kind of fun for us to be able to um, work with some ambient music and, and, and do some of the other kind of stuff in front of a crowd. Um, and it's, uh, it's fortuitous timing too because um, we're just on the uh, cusp of releasing an ambient album. So what's interesting about the Wonderment music series to you as musicians and as an audience? Well, I think probably the most exciting thing is, is just getting to... Um, hear music inside, for example, inside this uh, library courtyard. It's kind of a famous spot in Victoria for its acoustics, but it's not a place where we've seen any live shows happen yet. So, uh, like, just getting to play with this space and finally hear some music inside of it is pretty exciting. What else have you got coming up over the next few months? August 3rd, we're going to be on the south side of the Johnson Street Bridge on the Songhees side of the Inner Harbour. And there's a little plateau there and that's going to be more of a beat-oriented, um, down-tempo, dub-techno, that sort of vibe. It's not going to be, it's an urban square space, so uh, we feel that it, it lends itself to um, music that's not just completely ambient. And then uh, August 4th, we have Banfield Park in Vic West, and that event will feature Matt Thibodeau, who is also known as Altitude, and he's part of the group Repair from Toronto. He's released on a variety of European labels and also runs his own label, Obsolete Components. Um, that label itself is very dedicated to hardware. Um, you can't release on that label unless the whole production is, is made through hardware. And like, you can't even record your hardware set into a, a computer. You have to kind of, the whole chain is, is uh, hardware and mostly analog. He's someone that's never been brought west, so looking forward to debuting him in, for the west coast of Canada. That lineup, it will also feature the solo, who is an up-and-coming artist from Euclid. He's uh, involved in architecture and has like this big studio on you know the beach in Euclid and uh, basically has been broadcasting online because he's isolated um, so he basically will just perform live sets through 
YouTube or Facebook Live to like different synth groups, and it's getting a lot of attention. And um, we brought him and debuted his actual first live set in Victoria last year, and it'll be great to have him back. Um, also looking at um, trying to get Seg Segway over, uh, who's on the Silent Season label. Uh, which is kind of a similar thing to the solo. Silent Season is based in uh, Colmox Courtney, and it's you know it's way up and kind of removed from everything. And it's a label that is very much um, releases music that's reflective of the West Coast. Um, so Segway is just beautiful, kind of like textured, dubby ambient that um, very much reflects kind of like you know being in the rainforest and, and you know that sense of wonderment of nature we're on social media um, there's wonderment as a, a group um, there's the garden city electronic music society page um, plus our events and we're also you can connect to us through gcems.ca So that was some of the performers and organizers that are part of the Garden City Electronic Music Society and the Wonderment music series that happens around City of Victoria Parks over the summer. And I recently saw a post on their the Garden City Electronic Music Society Facebook page that said their call for performers is opening up soon. So keep your eyes peeled for that. That should be great. As I mentioned, there were a lot of other great interviews that we did over this past year that we would have liked to feature. People like Colton Hash and uh, our really fun Wilhelm Fringe preview interview would have been great. Um, and Dave Morris from Paper Street Theatre and uh, Brian Linz was also a lot of fun to talk to uh, about sound design and all kinds of stuff uh, for every brilliant thing at the Belfry. Um, but we couldn't squeeze them all in. We only had an hour. Um, so thanks for listening. Um, and if you have any ideas for future shows coming up for 2020, please email us, check the program, yyj at gmail.com. We're also on uh, Facebook and Twitter at check the program. And we'll be back to our regularly scheduled format uh, next month. Um, if you are listening to us on CFUV 101.9 FM, that's great. Thanks for listening. You can check out uh, back editions of our show on anchor.fm slash check dash the dash program or catch us anywhere you tune in to your favorite podcast. And until next time, I'm Amanda Farrell-Lowe. I'm Sarah Petrescu. I'm Melanie Trump-Hoover. I'm John Thrillfall. And don't forget to... Check, check, check the, the program. program! The greatest show. The greatest show you know. The program. It's called Check the Program. Check the Program. Yeah. Check the Program. The greatest show that you know. Check the Program. Check the Program. Check the Program. Yeah.